Now, I want to talk today about contrasts. Contrasts in Scripture. Because where we're going today, on the subject that we're, we're going to talk about today, actually looks at contrasts. Now, what is a contrast? Who, who doesn't know what a contrast is? Put your hand up high. If you say, when I say contrast, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Put your hand up high if you don't understand what a contrast is. Okay, that's good. Now I will get a contrast. But Pastor Jerome, come to me, please. This is a lesson on contrasts. I want you to listen and listen to what I'm saying because this is what a contrast is. Pastor Jerome, what color is Pastor Jerome? Dark. Yep, yep, dark. Black. Not quite. I've seen black. That's not quite black. It's, uh, so he's dark. So, and what color am I? White. So there is a contrast between the color of our skins. He is dark, and I am lighter. Okay, is that the only contrast? No. Oh, what other contrast? Height. Height. I am tall and he is shorter. Okay, is there any other contrasts? Yes. What other contrasts are there? Oh, oh he is fat and I am thin. <laughs> no, no, he is thin and I am not thin. <laughs> yeah. What other contrasts are there? Hair. His hair is... Well, that's a pot mitt. <laughs> His hair is short and mine is long and straight. What other contrasts are there? Glasses. I have glasses and he has no glasses. What else? He has white teeth and I have no teeth. I know that one. <laughs> and they are good. Let me see Oh, yes. Very nice. Okay, so the contrast, it tells you the difference. The difference. So when you read the Bible, sometimes you need to see the difference. Thank you, brother. You are handsome. And so am I. So that's a comparison, not a contrast. So you get that. You see, there are three, there are five things. And I, and I just, you can just put them down. And this is just free, okay? Before we start, this is free information. When you are studying the Bible, and of course, you love Jesus and you want to hear Jesus speak to you, so you want to read the Bible and think about what it's saying. There are five things. Everybody hold your hand up to me like this. Five things. There are five things you should do. First, if you, you should look at the things that the Bible emphasizes. And the word emphasizes means, and my chalk is breaking all the time, it means that it's... Like if I say, here's my arm, and I want to make an emphasis, it's like, here's my strong arm. It emphasizes the strength of the arm. So look in the Bible for things that are emphasized. Look in the Bible for things that are repeated. So when you read some passages of Scripture, he says, the love of God is everywhere. And he goes and tells you a little bit. And then he says, the love of God is big. And he goes and tells you something else. And the love of God is all over the place. So it's repeating the love of God. So look for in the Bible when you read things that are repeated. Then look for in the Bible things that are related. This is just free. This is helping you in the Bible study. 
related things are. Well, how is this thing related to that thing? And so when you're reading through a passage of Scripture, you might see this person is related to that person. You might see there's a family relationship there, and you can keep that in your mind. They are related in some way. Or it may be an idea is related to another idea. So he might say, this is the fruit of the Spirit. And then Jesus might say, you are a vine and we are branches and you should bear good fruit. And you say, that's kind of related because they're talking about fruit and there's still some, some sort of relationship between those things. So look for things that are related. Uh, also look for things that are alike. And we call those things that are alike comparisons. So look for things that are alike. They are the same as Pastor Jerome is handsome and Pastor Mark is handsome. That's Alike, but it's somehow different in some respect. He's much older than I am. That's not true, is it? <laughs> like, and different. Look for the things that are different. Different. In the Bible, it spells it right. Here, you won't get it right because I. Look for things that are different. And it's there that we look at contrasts. Our discussion today is going to be on walking the difference. Everybody say, walking the difference. I didn't hear you really well. Can you say it loud for me, Olga? Walking the difference. Everybody's got Olga. I just asked, that's okay. Walking the difference. You know, Christian life is different. And what this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today is going to do is he's going to show us some different things between what is Christian and what is not Christian. And we're going to look at those differences and we're going to ask ourselves, what can we learn from that in terms of our daily life? So we're going to ask Jesus to help us with that right now and ask him to guide us in this whole discussion so that he can get through to us. It's really important that you have understanding. If you listen to the Bible and you don't understand the Bible, then it will not help you. It won't learn anything. And the devil knows that because when you don't understand it, you're not taking it in. It's just sitting on the surface. And Jesus said, the seed that falls on the ground, and there there is no understanding, the birds of the air fly down and take the seed away. So if you don't have understanding, whatever we're telling you won't go into the ground and it won't begin to grow. It will be taken away and you will not benefit from it. So understanding is important. I must understand what God is saying if I am to grow. Okay? So we want to talk about understanding today and we want you to help you to understand the word of God. If I don't get you understanding this, there's no point in you coming here. Because this is not just to do our religious thing. You come to church to do our religious thing. I've done my church thing. I can go home now and watch telly. No, 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 no. This is not just doing church. This is meeting with God. This is meeting with his word. This is trying to understand what God is wanting to say to us and taking it into us and then letting it change us so that we become different to what we were yesterday. Understanding produces a change. The change produces a change in my life which makes me more like Jesus, which means that I can be more effective in my life. Amen? do you want to understand the word this day? Okay, let's pray and ask Jesus to give us understanding. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us. 
You said that where two or three are gathered in my name, you are in the middle of it. So Lord Jesus, even though we can't see you, we know that you are here. Thank you for coming, Jesus. Thank you for being here with us, Jesus. Now I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to understand this word so that as we listen to the word, the word will go into our hearts, into our minds, and it will begin to change the way we see things. Lord, we want to see things just like you see things. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about contrast today. We're going to talk about this passage of Scripture. We're looking, and if you want to turn into your Bibles, it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through to verse 24. And what we're going to do, it's an expository sermon. So when I say expository sermon, it means I'm going to go through the words that are there in the text, and I'm going to tell you what those words mean so that you can understand what he is saying. I'm going to try and do it slowly, so that you, and if I look in the sea on your face that you don't understand, I'm going to cry and slow it down a little bit. I don't care whether I don't get right through it today. It's not important that I get through it all today. I can come back next week, the Lord willing, and finish it off if I have to. It's important that you understand, though, because if you don't understand, you won't grow. Okay, we're going to start here. And so I told you, so this is Paul. This is the man who's writing it, the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's in jail and he's writing to a church that he has pioneered. And I think Timothy is probably the pastor of the church at the time. And he is writing to this church now and he says to them, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, okay, let's stop there and ask the question, who's he talking about and what's he actually saying? He's saying there, he doesn't want us, and he's insisting on it in the Lord. And the word insist is a very interesting word, and I'm not going to write it up on the board because it's not, but it's the place of a, a, someone who's going to court as a testifier, somebody who is a witness to something. And so it's like if I was summoned to court and I called my witnesses, I would want the witness to tell me the truth, and he would have to testify to the truth. So this whole word, he says, I am testifying to you. I am telling you before God who is my judge. I am letting you know, and I'm telling you very strongly in the court of God that you must not live as the Gentiles do. Now, the Gentiles is everybody else who's not a Jew. How many Jews do we have? Put your hand up if you're a Jew here. Oh, we don't know. Well, there's maybe no Jews. You don't know? But anyway, everybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. As far as the Jews are concerned, everything that's not a Jew is a Gentile. That means we are all Gentiles. Say, hello, Gentile friend. So we're not to live as the Gentiles. Well, he obviously is not talking about don't live like Gentiles, live like Jews, because we know it's not about living like a Jew, because if we're living like a Jew, we'd all have long beards like here, and we'd have funny robes on, we'd all walk around saying shalom. Everybody say shalom? shalom. Yeah, no, that doesn't suit us, does it? We say peace, don't we? We say peace, that's, what it, that's different. So we're not Jews, and he's not talking about us to live like Jews. He's actually saying, I, he's using the word Gentile to mean those who are not Christian. Those who are not Christian. Here we are. Just put a chair here, love. If you sit in this chair, that's good. And just sit down. And if you just take time, that'll be good. Just stay there. All right. So he's talking about those who are Christian and those. And he says, don't live 
like those who are not believers. Now you can understand that. What does a believer look like? Bang. And what does an unbeliever look like? And so what he's going to do now, he's he's told you, this is the beginning. I'm going to tell you right now. He says, I do not want you to live like unbelievers. And then he says, I'm going to describe for you what an unbeliever looks like. So you don't, you can see. Because if you can't see, you can't know. If I said, you shouldn't live like a Gurkha. What's a Gurkha? There are people called Gurkhas. Where do the Gurkhas live? They live in Nepal. And if I say to you, don't live like a Gurkha, you're looking at me like, what are you talking about? You have no understanding. And if you have no understanding, it doesn't help you any. So now we understand. He's saying, don't live like an unsaved person. You're a saved person. But that still doesn't help us because we still don't know what an unsaved person looks like or does like. So he's going to actually explain that very carefully for us now. So that's where we're going now. He says they have futility of their thinking. Now, the thinking is the faculty of thought that goes on in the mind. The thing that happens in your head, that's your thinking. I think that, and your feelings have to do with your emotions. Now, we kind of get thinkings and feelings all mixed up. We say, I feel like I'd like to go to the beach. Uh, No, I think like I'd like to go to the beach. You see... Let me explain something to you just at the beginning here. When we talk about the process of what goes on in our heads, it's a combination of different things. It can be emotions, like sad and happy and grieved and uh, excited and exuberant. It can be emotions and it can be thoughts like, um, you know, I wonder what I have to do to, to, to get my business going better you know it's nothing to do with your emotions it has to do with your faculty of thinking in your mind so there's lots of different things that happen in your thinking so this word thinking is all about everything of that stuff on the inside it's it's everything that would happen on the inside of you it's your emotions it's your thinking it's your will it's your strength it's everything that's on the inside of you that's what he's talking about and he says that the unsaved person he says there. Thinking is, so that's a contrast there, darkness and light. So he says that it, their idea is futile. And the opposite, the futile would be purposeful. Now for all those who are having trouble with English, let me explain these words to you. Futile. It's broken down into three ideas. And the three ideas, and you can write them down in your list. It's here. A mind filled with lies. Let me make it smaller. You might have to print smaller. It also says it's a mind that's filled with dirt. Now when I say dirt, I don't mean soil. I say dirt because it's a simple way of saying something that is dirty or perverse or corrupt. Unclean. Okay? So if on the one side you have a mind filled with lies, that's something that is not true. So if I'm sitting there and thinking, 
You know, I think I believe in that we all came from monkeys and that there is no God. That's a mind that is thinking something that is untrue. And you have a choice in life and you, you, you mix with people everywhere you go. You'll find it in school, at work. People who have untruths running around in their head. They have lies running around in their head. And you're going to have to encounter those people. I went to, I went to Sydney on Thursday with Nathan and Liz and we, we, we got on the taxi when we were going down there and we sat there with a lovely Muslim guy. And I said, hello, how are you? He says, good. And we started to talk and I asked him, tell me. Uh, you're a Muslim? He says, absolutely, of course I'm a Muslim. I said, great, great. Could you tell me, what's the core of your, your faith? What's it, what, what do you believe? Can you tell me the five things? I think there's five pillars in Muslim uh, belief, isn't there? Can you tell me what they are? Well, he was so delighted to be able to tell me about the five things. And he was telling me about how you have to pray, how you have to make a confession in Arabic, how you have to do the Quran, uh, do the, um, Ramadan fast, how you have to go to Mecca and how you have to give your tax. There are five things, and they, the tithing. There are five things that they do. These are the things that they have to do in their lifetime. So he's, he's telling me all these things. And I said, tell me now. I said, tell me what you think of Jesus. Oh, we worship Je- Oh, oh we, we believe in Jesus. He was just a man. You see, now, my mind says, uh-uh. He is God's son. I said, that's strange. I said, the Bible, I mean, the Christians believe that he is God's son. He is God in the flesh. I know, but Allah has no son. I said, can you tell me in the Quran where it says that Allah has no son? And so he tells me in the Quran where Allah has no son. So I said, so Allah is not like Jehovah in the Old Testament. They are not the one God. He says, no, they are not the one God. I said, I just wanted to know that. That's good. I, I need to know that. That was true. They're not the one God. But his ideas of what Jesus was or who Jesus was, they were lies. You know, and his mind is full of those lies. You see, your mind can be, it can be full of lies. And then the second taxi driver, he says, yeah, I'm a Muslim. He says, I bet I'm not a good Muslim. And I said, why are you not a good Muslim? He says, because, and he told me all his sin. And his mind is full of dirt. So he's not a good Muslim. And he's aware of it. So we talked about it and we learned lots and lots about the Islamic faith. And we were able to tell them about our faith too because we let them talk about their faith. But that's lies. Mind's full of lies. Mind's full of dirt. It also has minds that are weak. A mind that is weak. Now I'm not talking about weak in terms of belief because these guys were strong in their beliefs but weak in their ability to control themselves. So when we talk about a mind that's weak, it's, the, it's a mind that is not able to control yourself. It's a weak mind. It's fragile. It's, oh, I got, no, I get, I get swayed, I get moved, I get manipulated by things. That's a weak mind. So the Bible says, he says, when he says, when they use that word futile, those three things are meant in the Greek. It says, a mind that has lies in it or untruth in it, a mind that has dirt or corruption in it, and a mind that is weak, uncontrolled. That's what the word futile means in the Greek. Okay, so you got that? So that's that. 
So if you like then, if you looked at the contrast between that which is dark and that which is light, you would say that a Christian has a mind full of truth. Well, it should be getting more and more full of truth. You'd be putting more and more truth in on a daily basis. And it would be a clean mind. So as you got dirty thoughts that come through your mind, you'd be saying, oh, that's that's a dirty thought. I don't want that in my mind. And you would shake it out and say, Jesus, forgive me for thinking that. Take that dirty thought, that perverse thought away. Help me have a clean mind and a clean heart. And it would be a strong mind that would resist being pushed around and manipulated by the devil. So you've got straight away on the first verse, you've got some contrasts. A Christian has purposeful thinking. They're full of truth, they're clean on the inside, and they're strong by God. Whereas an unchristian is full of lies, full of dirt, and it is weak. Now, wait a minute. Now, just stop here now for a second. Let's just not go too far before we make an application of this. This week... How were you? Were you like a believer or were you like an unbeliever? This week, did you struggle with lies and then just give up and say, oh, well, I don't know, I'll just accept it or something. Something that was untrue. Did you struggle against something that was perverse, that was dirty? And rather than say, oh, no, I'm not going to have that and fight this fight of resisting, or did you say, I'm just going to give in and let your mind travel that way? Because it's not like this, just black and white, it's just there. You know what? We're caught in the middle often. We're caught in the gray. And what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, he didn't bring you here today to sit here and just get another lesson of life. He brought you here today to tell you that he wants you not to live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, that there's a different way of thinking. He brought you here today so he could impress within you, you need to take hold of the word of God and clean your mind and make your mind different. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. The word word of truth that wants to be implanted in you today, it wants to go into your life and take root, is this word. It's a different way of thinking. You can live and walk the difference. Amen? Bow your heads. Lord Jesus, help us to take this in. Lord, we do not want to hear what you are saying and not do what you are saying. That is absolute deception. Jesus, help us to hear, to receive with meekness your engrafted word and to be changed by it. And everyone said, all right, now let's go on and see what else it says in this passage of scripture. It says there, They are darkened in their understanding. And they're talking about the day. We know they're talking about the unsaved people, okay? It says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. Now, wow, that's a lot of words, isn't it, Esperance? Is it easy to understand? No, it's difficult to understand. So we're going to break it down 
slowly and see if we can tease out the idea that he's got here. See, a lot of times when you're reading, you think that you might have to read a lot of Bible so that you can make it good for you and God. You know, like I want to spend a lot of time with Jesus today, so I'll sit down and I'll read the Bible. And you know, you read, 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 and you get to the bottom of the page and say, what did I read just before? Oh, you got that one? I can't even remember where I... I just read a whole page of scripture and I don't even remember anything I read. It's like, oh no, I have to read that again. So I go back and read it again and I get to the bottom again and guess what? It's gone again. Who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? See, there's a secret. There's two kinds of rain. You get a thunderstorm and it hits the ground and it goes whoosh a lot of water all over the ground and then it washes away and then you know you get a spade and you dig the ground is the ground dry or wet it's it's dry why is that because the water didn't go in there was so much water it just ran across the top too much water at one time it won't go in it will just run off so the secret is this when you read the bible don't do a flood because you won't learn anything. Take one verse and let it sit there all day. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, I think I want to take that with me. So I'll just take that on a piece of paper and I'll think about it all day. I'll just read it. I'll just read it again. And I'll let it slowly, like a gentle rain, come down on the ground. And every time I drop falls on the ground it will soak into the ground and another drop slowly on the ground it soaks into the ground and after a week of slow and gentle rain you better not walk on the ground because it is muddy your feet will get stuck in the mud because the water has gone deep into the ground don't make your bible reading an exercise of a flood you know i've been bad i've watched tv i watched a movie i i i was thinking some wrong thoughts i i i got involved in wrong conversations i feel guilty about that so what i'll do is i'll read the bible for an hour to sort of make up the ground silly person it doesn't work that way this is not something that bible reading is not something you do to pay for your sins Bible, is, Bible reading is something you do to commune with God, to talk to Him. He's speaking to you through the Word. You don't have to read a lot of words so that you feel like you've done the righteous thing. You've done nothing. You've just read a lot of words and made yourself tired. But if you want God to speak to you, slow it down and say, Speak to me, Holy Spirit. Speak to me. I want to hear your voice. And then you read and you read a little bit and you understand it. If you understand it, it'll go deep into your life and it will change you. Different than yesterday. Different than last week changed from last year more holy more righteous more passionate today than i was yesterday why because the word of god got in to the soil and made it fresh and so here we have it it says they were darkened in their understanding now the word darkened is an interesting word because it means uh, 
to cover with darkness or to darken. So I'll just rub these out so we can write some more stuff in there. It's interesting that there, God is interested in bringing light to your understanding, where the devil is interested in closing off your understanding so you can't understand it. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. If you want to write that down, that's a good one to write down and think about later. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, that they cannot see the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. So the devil is all about blocking out the light, all about bringing some confusion. Making it so you don't understand. If you understand, you said, I get the light. I can see. I can see. I can understand. If you don't understand, it's about, I don't understand. I'm in the dark. You see, the devil wants you to be in the dark because you'll live like you're in the dark. And then God wants you to be in the light, so you live like you're in the light. It's simple, you know. You just got to have understanding. And the devil is out trying to take your understanding away. So don't sit here week after week and say, I don't understand something. You have a pen, you have a piece of paper, because I gave you a pen and a piece of paper. If you don't understand something, write it down. I don't understand what this word is. Then come and see me later, or come and see somebody else later, and I ask the question, what does this mean? Because when you find out what it means, it could change your life. Amen? Okay. So the devil is all about making it darker. And God is all about making it light. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 130, you can write that one down too, 119, verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. I'll say it one more time for those who are writing it. Psalm 119, verse 130. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Everybody say that with me. The entrance of your word gives light. Say that. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It gives understanding to the simple. That's what the word does. It comes in, it comes into our lives, and it brings light. The lights come on on the inside, and it gives understanding to those who don't have understanding. So if we want to get understanding, we want to go to the word of God and get it. <clears throat> now, how many people like going to the movies here? Put your hand up. Just to be honest. Now, I, I watched a movie. And this is, I'm going to talk to you about what happens in the movies. I, just, I watched a movie called The Matrix a long time ago. Who's seen The Matrix? Who liked The Matrix? Mm -hmm. well, 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 I'm not going to talk about the fact that it's a Buddhist movie. Um, it talks about reincarnation. I'm not going to talk about that. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I want you to talk about, I want to talk to you about what you felt like when you were leaving the movie. Can you remember what you felt like after you'd seen that movie? You, you liked the movie, didn't you? Yeah. Think about it. What did you feel like when, because I, I felt a certain thing when I, when I stopped and I, and I walked out of that movie. I felt like mm, fogged. Like it was like everything was different now. I was looking at things differently. Did you, who felt that when they were walking around? You felt that? I felt that maybe we're just odd. Because, I mean, what was the name of the guy in the movie? Neo. Neo, remember, Neo could see. He could see that it was just a computer program. He had the insight. All those who know this movie, he could see it. I walked out thinking, this is like a matrix here. 
I walk around thinking every, everything's like a matrix, looking at everything sideways, you know, thinking maybe he's a computer. I, it, it messed with my head. It altered the way I thought about something. It changed. Now, this is what I believe happens when you're in the movies. There's a little thing called a spirit that's over that thing, like a, a, an evil spirit. And when you go there and you open up the eye gate and you open up the ear gate and you, you listen and you get called into it, what the devil does is he says, have a little bit of confusion. Have a little bit more confusion. And so he sows some confusion. So when you walk out from that place, you're walking out a little bit confused. Now what the confusion does is that it starts to dull your mind. It starts to turn the lights off. So if you like, darkness is switching off. Light is switching on. That's the difference. So what the devil is trying to do is he's trying to turn all the lights off. He's trying to switch them all off. So you go and see a, a movie that's got immorality in it. You know, maybe it's a young people's movie. In the young people's movie, they present in the young people's movie that sex before marriage is normative. It's normal. Everybody's doing it. You know, why is that wrong? You know, and, and everybody's having fun. They're having lots of excitement. And there's sex before marriage going on there. And you're a young person. You walk in there and you say, oh, yeah. Oh, it's a, no, it's a bit naughty. Yeah. Oh, it's a bit naughty. But you sit there. You enjoy the storyline and you go away and the lights have started to be turned off on your moral vision. The moral vision is starting to be switched off so you can't see a distinction between right and wrong. It gets all confused in your head. The devil's all about making it darker. He's all about switching the lights off so that you get sucked right in to stuff that you wouldn't normally do. So the Bible says, and Paul tells us, Switch things on in God. That's why I want you to have understanding because the entrance of the word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So I would be sitting in the word of God and say, teach me your word. Teach me your ways. I want to switch it on. I don't want to switch it off. I want to switch it on. So I have understanding. What does it say there? It says, they're separated. So that's the word darkened understanding and then it goes to separate it from the life of God now there's one thing that the devil likes to do he likes to separate but it's separate from fellowship and intimacy with God and with other people so that would be the separation. Now, separation is an interesting thing. Because it means that we're going to go further apart, not closer together. So when David had his ear problem, when you got your, your hearing, was, that sort of like separates you. So you can't hear anymore. God healed his ears and he can hear now. So he was now connected more. Separation is an interesting thing because if we can separate, we can destroy, we can kill, and we can maim. A wolf comes and he sees a, a herd of sheep. He looks at the herd, 
Wow, I like to eat. You know, if that herd of sheep has got a good ram in the middle of it, they'll stand there and the whole herd will stay together really tight and the, and the rams will sit there with their heads like this or the buffalo will sit there with their heads like that and the, and the lion won't get anywhere near them because every time the lion comes in, he gets a couple of horns right up there. You just go right there because they're stuck together. They won't, you know, so what he does is, you know, don't let them stand still. Let's get them running. And as they, get, they, they start running, and the, he starts to come out and he looks to see if he can separate a weak one from the flock. If he can separate it, then he can run that one down and tire that one out and bear down on that person until that person has just given up and just stops and he'll eat them. Just like that. Separating. So he doesn't want you to be connected with individuals doesn't want you to feel like you're part of a family. wants you to feel like you're just attending church, just sitting in church. You know, no one would even miss me if I wasn't there. Who would even know if I wasn't there? They're all busy with their own lives. Everybody's doing their own thing, you know. So what? So if I'm not there, who cares? You know, whatever. Separate. Separate. Take you away from intimacy. Take you away from fellowship. Oh, there's purpose in that. There's a mind in that. That's the way the world is. The world is separate. You know what? We don't have in the world any sense of connection. You go, I, I remember as a kid, I, I just wanted to, I saw it on the TV, all the kids, they had drinking and having a party, you know, they were dancing, and they looked like they were having so much fun. I was brought up in a church, you know. Hallelujah, Jesus. And I think, you know, I looked at the movie and I said, they're having fun. They're going down and they're drinking air, they're drinking beer and they're partying and they're dancing. You know, the people on the cokehead, they're all young and they're all beautiful and they're all having fun. I want to join that crowd. I want to join the crowd that hangs out at the coke festivals with the coke in their hand, you know. I'll drink coke just as long as I can belong to that crowd. You know what? I went looking for that crowd as a young man. I went looking at the places where those crowds hung out. I went with all those young people and I sat alone in the, in the pubs watching them all sit alone in a pub. They were not connected. They were not engaging with it. They were all individuals, independent and alone. There was nothing there. Nothing of intimacy and nothing of reality. I have more intimacy here than I have in a pub. They'll try to it, but oh, man, in the end of it, they live alone. We are famous for our individualism in Australia, in the West. We are proud of our individualism. Don't tell me what to do. I'll live my own life. I'm not going to be part of the crowd. I'll do what I want to do. We're all individuals, and we are proud of our individualism. But the believer is not individual. He's connected. He's connected in fellowship and in intimacy. So that little Adolphin can sit down and talk to Uncle Graham and they can meet intimately together on spiritual issues and talk as though there is no difference amongst them. Get that. Who would have thought that? That two completely different people could sit together and find fellowship and intimacy in Jesus. Think that through. It's so important that you understand what I'm telling you today. 
Christians are different, and we should walk the difference. We should live the difference. It's good to be different. It's good to understand what the difference is and to live the differences out. What else is different? They separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, the ignorance, when it talks about ignorance, and I'm watching the time, folks. We're not going to get through it all, so that's okay. When it talks about ignorance, it's talking about blindness. Now, we talked about that before, but blindness particularly, it's a moral blindness, Moral blindness. That's the word ignorance. Moral blindness. Now moral blindness is an interesting thing. Because one of the things that we really have difficulty with in today's society is discovering what is right and wrong. You no doubt if you're at school, you'll have had kids say to you, why is it wrong? How many of you have heard that statement? Why is it wrong? Like you believe it's, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. Why is it wrong? We'll say, I mean, it just feels wrong. It just feels wrong. Well, it might feel wrong for you, but it doesn't feel wrong for me. Now, in every man there's a compass, or in every man there is a conscience. Surely if God has given every man a conscience, then if every man has a conscience, then it should be the same for every person, right? should be. So here's a, it's a Roman... What do we call that? What do they call it when they sundial? Uh, just pretend, okay? This is an object lesson. You have to pretend. This is a sundial. And look, when I look at this, my sundial tells me that it's nearly 11 o'clock. The shadow from the sun is bearing down and it's casting a shadow at 11 o'clock, towards 11 o'clock. How can I, if that's conscience and God is the sun and shining on the sundial, it will say the same thing every time. Surely. Of course it will. Nowhere, wherever you are in the world, it will say the same thing. Doesn't matter what culture you come from, it will say the same thing. Everywhere it will say the same thing. How can I change that? I have to get another bit of light. This time, this is my light. This is my understanding and this is my thoughts about good and evil. So what I do is I shine my light on it now. And I shine it bright. Now where does the shadow cast? Sun shadows cast here. But when I'm shining my light on it, where's the shadow cast? This way, in the opposite direction. That's my conscience still. But my light now determines where the shadow will fall. So I can turn the clock backwards if I don't get back to God's word. Moral blindness is having your own view of right and wrong and contradicting God's view of right and wrong and saying, I don't feel like it's wrong because, look, my conscience doesn't tell me it's wrong. Well, your conscience is corrupted because you're shining your light on your conscience and not letting God shine his light on your conscience. Do you understand that? So what we have on one side is moral blindness where we don't understand what's going on. And the other side we have moral vision. We can see. 
And he says, they're blind because their hearts have been hardened. They've got a hard heart. Now, the word hard is an interesting word. It means calloused. Do you understand what calloused means? No. Okay. Say the word callous. Callous. It is spelt C-A-L-L-U-S. What is a callous? If I took my shoe off, I could show you a callous. But don't try my hand. Look at my hand. Where, take the ring off. Take the ring off. Look at that there around the ring. What do you see? What's that, what's that feel like? Hard? Hard. That's called a callous. It means thick skin where it gets hard. If I'm working hard, my hands become rough and hard from hard work. What do you remember about dad? When he touched your face, it was like a shovel touching my face. Ah, my baby, come here. Well, don't get your hand off my face. You're hurting me. His hand was hard and rough. What was mum's hand like? Mum's hand is soft and gentle and sweet, you know. Dad's hand is heavy and rough. Which one would you want to hit you first, mum or dad? Ah, get get that callous working. Callous means hardness. Now, if I build up, say I'm a, uh, I, I martial artist, you know, and the martial arts, they just punch hard things like this, they keep on punching. And why do they punch a piece of wood all the time? Why do they do that? They harden it so they get ready. All their nails, are, their heart, it's so hard, they've got, you, it's like hitting with a hammer. They, they hit so many times that it got hard, very hard on their nails, very hard on their knuckles there. Hit, 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 hit all the time. So they can hit a piece of concrete now and it won't hurt them because they don't feel it anymore. It's calloused and when you've got callous, you don't feel it anymore. No more feeling. No more pain. Well, give me callous. Oh, wait a minute. Why would you want to have no feeling and no pain when you saw a child being hurt? Oh, it's funny, isn't it? This is how we do it. What's more fails? You know those little video clips that where somebody fails at something? They're riding their bike, riding along, and then it trips. Ah, dong, and he bangs his head on the ground. You go, ha, 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 ha. Oh, that was so funny. You see, he bangs his head. He got up, his blood pouring down his head. Ha, ha, ha. So funny. Watch another one. And here's another one. He's riding his bike, and he takes off and inspect into the wall, and his arm's hanging off, half hanging off. Ha, ha, ha. You see, his arm is hanging off. Ha, ha. You know, You are laughing there. You think it's funny. You know, you have no pain. You are callous. Well, how does the movies help me to do that? Well, keep watching immorality on the movies and you will have no pain when you see it around you and you will have no pain when you do it. You will have become calloused. Keep feeding that rot, that filth, that garbage into your mind. 
Keep thinking about it. It's deadening you. It's making you dead on the inside. It's causing you to be dead on the inside. So dead that you will not feel anything anymore. You will see people starving and you'll say it's their own stupid fault. You look at people who, are, who don't have the opportunities that you have. Don't come from the life you come from and you won't phase you. You'll think, you know, if I was in their position, I would make it work for me. And when you go and listen to some of these life coaches, friends, it's all about you, you know, it's all about what you're doing. Sometimes life coaching is not going to change the poverty around you. This no pain is not a winner, it's a loser. Because when you get in a situation and you feel no pain, you have hardened yourself up so hard that you don't care, whatever, whatever. Don't live like that. Make a difference. Feel like God wants you to. Feel what God feels about that. My daughter, Renee and Nathan and Jade. Nathan's not a daughter, he's a son. I had to clarify that. When they were younger, you know, we had put the TV on. And because we, we got rid of the TV when Nathan was just a little boy, you know. It sounds like I'm bashing TV, but I'm not. I'm just telling you a lot of it comes in through the TV. So we took the TV away. So they didn't have TV. So they weren't completely bombarded by this stuff all the time. So you, what, what you had is you had these little girls. And if anything scary came on the TV, if they went somewhere and they were watching a TV and something scary came, they'd go, oh. Oh, they get up and they go out the room. You remember doing that? Getting up and walking out the room. Why? Because it was all too scary. I take their mother and I say, come and have a look at this. And I'll show her something. She's looking and she's, oh, oh, I don't want to see that. Oh, she'll walk away. Like Nathan shot himself in the leg with a nail gun. Oh, it's easy to do, you know. Three inch nail, you know. In his leg. Boom, like that. Nail straight into his leg. I said, Look at that. He comes to me, Dad, look. I got the head of a nail looking at me. So how do you do that, son? That's really good. I just So, you know, he says, I said, I'll get it out for you. So I get a pair of pliers. Big pair of pliers, grab the end of it. You know, you know what's going to happen next, don't you? You can either do it slow or you can do it fast. How am I feeling? What do I want to do? You know what Nathan says? Wait. Wait. No, he wasn't to brace himself. Get my camera going. <laughs> I've got to get it on camera. He <laughs> got it on the movie. He's got it there. He says, now pull it out, Dad. Boof! And I pulled it out. And go, oh, that's a, you know he wanted it on the movies because he wanted to take it home to his wife because she just loves blood and guts because she's a nurse. Now, if you ask Nathan nicely, he'll actually show you. It's still on his phone, probably. He will show you the nail that's hanging out of his leg, and and we had some music playing, gentle music playing when we pulled it out. 
You can harden your heart or you can freshen your heart up in God. Now, we can't go any further because our time has run out. And I want to get on to looking at this now at a particular situation that has to do with the Lord's Supper. Because today is our Lord's Supper day. So I want you to do, what I want you to do is, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I will will deal with this more later on. It's not important that I go through everything straight away here. And you need to help me on this one because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is having a problem with the Corinthian church. See, the Corinthian church is doing something That's not good. And they don't seem to care about it. You see, what they have is they're having their love feast. We go to verse 17 on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Now, this is a reading from the New King James. Now, I'm giving you these instructions. I do not praise you. Now, in giving these instructions, Paul says, I'm not going to praise you. He says, because something bad is going on here, and I want to talk to you about it. He says, since when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there is divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So he's saying, when you're coming together, and he's talking about them when they're coming together for a meal to remember the Lord's Supper, he said that there is division amongst them. Some people had lights on and some people had lights off. Okay? So then he's going to come and talk to us about the problem that he sees in the church. He says, For there must, uh, he says in verse 20, There when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper that we're meeting today to celebrate. The Lord's Supper. God's meal as a family. And when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one has his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in what you do? I do not praise you. So what was happening there? Well, the church was a large church. And so they decided that they were going to have their love feast, like we have a love feast. And they were going to have it on a particular day. Well, I think they had it quite regularly, I think. But what happened is the church was broken up into groups of people. There were those who had and those who didn't have. And some who had to work in the fields and some who were, didn't have to work so much. And so when the church would come together, what would happen is they wouldn't come together to eat together. They would come together to eat. And we'd have a group of people over here who had plenty of food because they got it at Hungry Jack's. And they'd sit down there and they'd eat it all and they'd be full and they'd have enough wine to make them drunk. And then this poor group of people over here, they were left out. When they came to church to have the meal together with the church, they were working in the field. They came, they didn't bring anything with them. And when they came here, there was nothing to eat and and all the drink had gone. And so they were left hungry. It wasn't like connecting together. Let's look at that list I've got here. 
Let's talk about some of the things that might have been going in. Now, Paul is actually bringing this up with them. He's talking to them about this problem. They're not discussing it. What does that tell you about how they feel about the problem? They're dead. No feeling. No pain. So there's a moral blindness. Here they are coming together and they can't see the immorality of pigging out while somebody doesn't have a pig out. They are caught up with their own self. Self is the center here. So there's no intimacy And there's no fellowship. Does this sound familiar? What is this, Christian or unchristian? Tell me. It's unchristian behavior in a Christian church. They're showing the signs of walking in the darkness, not walking in the light. And there's no moral compass inside of them because they've changed their minds with regard to it. They don't have a problem of doing this. Paul from the outside has to shine in on that culture and say, hey, 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 stop that. Because they're quite happy that that just keeps on going. They're quite happy that they just keep on having their time. You know, we'll just get our food together. You have your food. We'll have our food. This is my lunch, not your lunch. You know, what are you doing borrowing my lunch? You know, go and get your own lunch. There's a separation and a division that's going on there. It's not a good thing. It's not a Christian thing. You know, I always read that passage of Scripture and and, and I thought, you know, God's a bit heavy-handed, don't you think? When he talks about this communion service, he says, that's because you're doing this, this is why the judgment of God is coming on you. And some of you are sick and some of you are dying. Because, he says, look at what he says in verse 28. Go to verse 28. 11.28 or go to 27 therefore everyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord so he say you're not living worthy not walking worthy is this unworthy he says you're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord so he talks first about the sacrifice that Jesus made the body was broken if you, if you look at Ephesians, Jesus broke his body to, divide, to destroy the dividing wall, the wall of petition. When he broke his body, the, the, the veil was rent in two so that you could have intimacy and access to Father God. He died and shed his blood so that you could enter into an intimate and close fellowship with God and with each other. That was the work that he did at the cross. He says, when you don't live this way, when you come together on a communion service and you eat for yourself and drink for yourself and it's a greedy expression about what you want and you don't care about it, he says, you are not judging or not doing this towards Jesus. Jesus broke his body so that you could be one here. He shed his blood so that you could be one. You're not discerning the body of Christ or the blood of Christ. That's what he did. He did that to bring unity. Listen to what it says there. The next verse it says, But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, he said the Lord's body this time. And this time he's not talking about the body. and the, He's talking about you as a fellowship. You're not discerning the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Now, I think, you know, why you're drinking, drinking judgment on yourself, it says. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 7, it says, You are the body of Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if any person destroys the temple of the Holy Spirit, the, the Scripture says very clearly, God will destroy him. God will destroy that person. And he says, and the temple of God is who you are. So he's talking collectively. He's not talking about individual. I am the temple of God. No, no, no. In this passage of Scripture, he's talking about us collectively. He says, you are collectively the body of Christ. And if anybody destroys the collective body of Christ, God will destroy him. Every time somebody does something to hurt the body of Christ, the fellowship of a whole body, the judgment of God is approached right there, ready to strike. Ananias and Sapphira. First time in the church there was any deception. They come in and they lied to God and they lied to Peter about how much they were going to give. They thought they could deceive people. And what did God do? Struck them down dead. Why? Because they thought he, they thought they could corrupt the body of Christ, bring an influence of corruption into the body of Christ and escape God's judgment. God holds us together very, very seriously. He says, what we are as one group of people is serious. He says, if you don't acknowledge and don't recognize that you are part of one body and you act independently from that body, then the judgment of God is going to come on you. That's what he's saying there. If you treat the body like it's something that I can use, that I can just discard it, I can say anything I like to the body, I can bring division to the body, you know what? You don't have to deal with me. God is looking after his body. You can't touch his body without him being angry about that. So in this passage of Scripture, when we come around the Lord's Supper, these people were coming around the Lord's Supper with the sense of self. Now, now let me explain something about ritual. Something that happens in, our, in, in society. Ritual. Ritual is connected to well-being. Let me explain what that means. And then I'll ex explain the trap. Ritual is connected to well-being. When you go to bed at night time, before you close your eyes to sleep, what's the very last thing you have to do? Please tell me. Pray. You have to pray. All right. Now you've just prayed, but before you prayed, what's the next thing you have to do before you go to sleep? Sorry? Brush your teeth. Why, well, you know, if you don't brush your teeth when you go to bed, you will lay there and a little while later you go, something is just not right. My well-being is being affected because I have not brushed my teeth. Mums will know that the children will not settle down unless you come and sit and pray with me. Sit down beside me and pray with me. It's like a routine. It goes something like this. Da, 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 da. That's the routine. The routine brings a sense of well-being. Now, ritual is meant to teach us the things that we should never forget. Behind every ritual, there's a beautiful meaning. It is not the ritual that we're looking at, but it's the meaning that we're looking at. What's the meaning behind brushing your teeth? 
Just so you have a nice taste in your mouth. What is the meaning about brushing your teeth? Sorry? Preserving your teeth. You brush your teeth to clean your teeth so no kid. There's a meaning. So we, we set up a little ritual for the children to know that this is the meaning that is behind brushing your teeth. You never just go in there mindlessly. If you forget the reason for the ritual, what happens? You worship the ritual. And your well-being is in the ritual and not in the meaning of the ritual. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dirk Hype, a guy in sociology, said that what happens when we establish ritual is that we establish a sense of well-being. And he did a study. He went out and studied. He says, when your rituals change, you'll be more inclined to kill yourself because your sense of well-being is broken. So he said, how would people's rituals change? He says, people who lose a lot of money would become depressed. They can't maintain their life's ritual. They would get depressed and they would kill themselves. So he went and did a study. And did you know he found something? He found that those who lost a lot of money, who went into bankruptcy, were more inclined to kill themselves than those who weren't. You say, well, that's just common sense, Mark. Of course, you get depressed. You, know? yeah, you can't live your lifestyle. You can't live your ritual. Because you've got no money, you get depressed, your well-being is affected because you can't do your ritual. Therefore, because you can't do your ritual and can't have your well-being, you get depressed and you kill yourself. To test his idea, he says, well, if you get and win a lot of money, it would be the same. You say, oh, get off. You don't tell me if I win a million dollars that I'll be more inclined to kill myself. That's what he was trying to find out. So he now looked at all of those who won a million dollars or more. And guess what he found? He found that their well-being went down as well and they were more prone to kill themselves. What was that? Because now they had all the money they wanted and it still didn't bring them happiness. They lost their rituals. Their well-being was premised on their rituals and they kill themselves. So he discovered something. Ritual produces well-being. Now let me bring that into the church. When I was a little boy... We used to have communion, and I have no problem with the way that people have communion, with small cups and small things, small piece of bread and small cup. I have no problem with that. I'm happy to do that. But for me, it's the meaning more than it is the ritual. Now, I know this is a sacrament, but I believe that the meaning of the sacrament has to be maintained because it changes the way you do it from different places. When I was a little boy, they used to have these things. And they used to have uh, the altar. Remember the table at the front was called the altar? It was a church, but it wasn't a temple because we are the temple of God. But it was a building, but we made it into a temple because we put an altar at the front. We called it the altar, and it was an altar call. Everybody would come to the altar. So we put the altar in them, and we, and we put all the glasses and the, and the bread on it, and the deacons would come around, and then every Sunday we would do this ritual. Nothing wrong, and people would have a word of knowledge and a prophecy. The same people would prophesy every week, wouldn't they, Dad? You know, just about every week, the same. Like, you'd know exactly after the prayer, this person was going to prophesy, this one was going to have a tongues and interpretation. It would just go like that. It was like... And then one day, one of the pastors says, what we're going to do is we're going to take out the front, take it off the front, and we're going to put it in the back, in the kitchen area. And the deacons will go to the back of the kitchen, and they will get the glasses from the back of the kitchen and bring it and give it to people so that it's not sitting in the front any longer. They were going to change the ritual. And what happened? Because people didn't understand the meaning behind the ritual and they'd be locked on to the ritual, 
They got offended. They got upset. Now, we hadn't altered the meaning. We hadn't taken the cups and the, and the bread away. We just altered the way we were doing it. And because people were comfortable and had their well-being premised on the ritual, that was where they got shaky. I asked a man one day, I, I said, the bread and the wine, what sort of bread should it be and what sort of wine should it be? The emblems are important. What should they be? I said, should it be unleavened bread like the Jews use and wine? Or can I have bread like tip-top bread cut in slices and black currant juice? Oh, he said, that doesn't really matter. He says, that doesn't matter. They're only emblems. I said, can you have communion with me with a cup of Coke and a Mars bar? No, absolutely not. I said, why not? Why can't we break a Mars bar together, remember the broken body of Jesus, and have a sip of a cup of Coke together and have, remember the blood of Jesus? Because and, and and, and it's the meaning that it points to. It's not the emblems. It's the meaning that it points to. You see, the ritual is meant for the meaning, not for itself. It's not meant for the ritual. It's meant for the meaning. If you lose the meaning, you lost it. You can keep the ritual, but if you don't have the meaning, you've lost it. What is the meaning here at the communal feast? What is the meaning? What is it? Is it, is it just to remember Jesus' broken bloody and his shed blood for us and to examine yourself? Listen, what we do, because we are such a me-orientated, self-orientated people, this is me here. We come together as a body of people. We could have a thousand people here and we can have communion here with a thousand people. And we say, take that bread and take that cup. Now close your eyes. Now think of anything that you might have done to offend the body of Christ. Now think of anything you might have done to offend Jesus. And you have this little individual relationship with you and Jesus examining yourself to see that you are right with God. And you don't even interact with the person opposite you. You don't even connect with somebody caught sideways because you've lost the meaning the meaning was this is a love feast this is for us we are the people of God and God resides within us his blood broke it down his body broke down the wall of perdition he brought us together from every nation and he brings us together as one family that's the meaning of this thing if you forget the meaning of this thing, then God says, you've got to break it down. This is exactly what the church at Corinth did. This is exactly what they did. They were getting together because they were coming to church, but they had lost the meaning of the feast. Their oneness, the unity. And God says, I'm judging you now because of that. You forgot the meaning of this issue. Now, I can, we have had here... Plenty of times, and we, and we will have, again, people having small bread and small cups. That's all right. You, that doesn't matter. We, we can do that. That's not a, you can come to church with a tie on, or you can come to church without a tie on. I love you either way. I say that because, uh, only because there's not... Uh, people, you can dress it up any way you like it. You can come with African clothes on or without African clothes on, just as long as you've got clothes on. It doesn't matter. The issue here is... Where is your heart? I don't care about the ritual. I'm passionate about the meaning. 
if we're living in a society that holds up individualism as somehow great, fantastic, be your own person, be your own man, don't connect with others, then what we need is a church to take something and bring it to a place where we say, think about the body of Christ. Think about what Jesus did to bring us together. So when we have this love feast, this feast that we all contribute to, this feast that we come and share together, this is a feast not of I will eat what I want to eat and have my fill. This is a feast of sharing, of contributing, of unity and of oneness. The emblems, sometimes we have them and sometimes we don't. But one thing we want to do is keep the meaning alive. Because if you lose the meaning, all you're left with is a hollow shell. In history, the Catholics said, this is the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. They called it, it's called transubstantiation. So that when the priest stood up there with his piece, they called the host, stood up there with his host and his cup and he held up for a blessing, it became the actual body and the blood of Jesus. So that when you came and to the front and you, you put the host on your tongue, you were not to chew it. It was just to dissolve in your mouth. Because you're not to chew on Jesus. Seriously. Friends of mine who are Catholics, firm Catholics, believe strongly that that's the case that it becomes the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. And they'll tell you that there is places in Europe you can go and find and find hosts that have turned into flesh and they've become human flesh and you can go and see it. It's all in the, you can go and see it. You can see the thing. It's the hosts. It's the thing. It's the emblems. In the Protestant church, we don't believe that. What we believe is called subsubstantiation. We believe that these are only emblems. They are pictures of. They show us something that is of this is bread, but it's symbolic of the body of Jesus. This is a glass of juice or something. It's symbolic of. So it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's unleavened or leavened. Or it's just symbolic of something. And so your bread that you eat and the drink that you drink at this feast is symbolic of something. The one meal is symbolic of the one body of Jesus. The one drink that we drink, and we'll all drink... And it will be Fanta for some and juice for others and cup of tea for some. But that one drink is made possible because it's the blood of Jesus that brings us all together. That's the meaning behind this. Now, I want you to understand that. I mean, this is like, why do we do the things we do? That's why we do the things we do. I don't mind if you want to do it the other way. I'm happy to do that with you. I will join with you and do that with you. That's fine. But I want us to hang on to the meaning of the ritual. Because at this point, this is where we need to see what God has done with us. Amen? Now, in, the, in history, if you didn't believe what a Catholic believed, they would burn you at the stake. That was one of the questions. What's the Eucharist? Is it? Transubstantiation or subsubstantiation? And if you said transubstantiation, take them out and burn them at the stake. But the Catholics would burn you at the stake. That's how much they defended that. 
idea. We can get the same thing, you know. I'm here to say God brings us into unity because we are different. Amen? But the one meaning undergirds us all. You might be comfortable in doing communion differently to this. That's fine. That's fine. And I will join with you in communion doing it differently. The idea is understand the meaning of it. And let's uphold the unity of the body and the precious work that Jesus did on the cross for us through his body and blood. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and let's ask God's blessing upon this meal. Father, we just thank you that we can come together as a body. From every tribe and every nation, Father, you bring your people together. We couldn't be any more different, Father, in terms of our origins. But you have broken down the middle wall of petition. You have brought us into unity. For you are our peace, Lord Jesus. You are our peace. And Lord, we would ask, oh God, that at this time of celebration, as we celebrate this meal together that was only made possible because of the blood and the body of Jesus, we ask, oh God, that you would help us to be conscious of that and work, Lord Jesus, to lift up the work that you are doing in and through the lives of these people. We thank you, Jesus, for that matchless sacrifice of your body and blood. We thank you for shedding that blood for us that covers our sins and washes us clean. Thank you for breaking your body, Father, that would bring us together, Lord Jesus, with Father God and cause us to have fellowship with Father God and to live in intimacy with Father God. We thank you, Jesus, for that great price, Lord, and we thank you for the resurrection that brings us into a new and living way. We ask, Lord God, that you bless the food today, bless our fellowship around this table, this sacred table, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you.